we have baptism. So we have a lot going on. It's all good, all fun. Baptism is coming up. If you want to get baptized, please come see me at the end of the church or the service. And come see Pastor Carter, too. We're going to be out there and answer any question. Okay? So now we're going to transition for a part of the worship that is to bring a tithes and offering. So if you're new here, don't feel obligated unless you want to feel in your heart like, okay, I want to be a part of this show. If your family here, you can give on crossbridgefamily.com. We have a box outside. You can bring your tithes and offerings uh, physically. And we also have an app you can download. And... Those are the ways you can give. And let me tell you, I want to thank you for your generosity. You have no idea. These are the times that we come together, we can do so much. And I know that we bring some videos to you from time to time for you to see what your generosity does. So pretty soon we're going to have a new video and you're going to see, because it's good for you to know too that we reach out beyond what we can see. We help our church, our community, and outside Miami and even USA. And I want you to know. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Please pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for the freedom to be here, God, to worship you with everything that we have, with everything that we do, Dear Jesus, thank you for every gift that you give to us, God. We want to give back. We want to reach out. So use it. Multiply it for your glory, God. Guide us, your leaders, God, your church, to use, God, all that you give to us to help your neighbors to help our widows, our orphans, God. Thank you so much because we have the opportunity to give back. God, have your way in this place, have your way in this city. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Happy Palm Sunday, church. How's everyone doing this evening? Amen. How's everyone doing this evening? There we go. We're a two-time church. I haven't brought that back in a while. We, uh, it takes us two times to get revved up. Uh, I'm excited to be here on this Palm Sunday, the launch of Holy Week. I can't believe it's here. This year has gone by so fast. And uh, this starts an exciting week in the life of our church. As uh, Simone shared, our campus director, uh, there's a lot happening in our church family. There's a lot happening here at Crossbridge Brickell, and we're glad that you're here with us tonight. Those of you online, welcome as well. We're so glad uh, that you are joining us and worshiping with us where you are. 
I want to uh, just give a round of applause for our kids' ministry team. Can we thank them for organizing the, the Hosanna Parade, which was awesome, and the Palms. That was, that was special. And uh, I just wanted, I wanted to give you guys a little bit of an update on something that's happening in our church uh, with our kids' ministry. I want to thank our leaders, and I also want to share with you some developments because they affect you. So if you've been at Crossbridge Brickle for some time, you know that our kids' ministry is always on the move. It's changing locations because we're grateful uh, for this space that we rent from the Lutheran Church, but space is limited. With a growing church and a growing uh, kids' ministry, we're constantly moving. So we used to be in the school next door, then they kicked us out and told us we can't go there anymore. And we actually, for a season of time, erected a yurt, like a tent outside and put two air conditioning units in it, and that was not sustainable. And two air conditioning units is not enough in the summer, so that, we had to can that. And then the past year, you may not know this, uh, but the past year, our kids have been meeting in the pastoral office in the back, which we take apart the office, erect the kids' ministry, have kids' ministry, tear down the kids' ministry, re-establish the office for the pastor. And every single week. And it was small, but it was working, and uh, we were making the most of it. Now, we have been kicked out of there as well. So, kids are on the move again. And uh, one of the things that we've been, you know, contemplating is that we understand that there's limitations. As you know, here at the church, we've been praying for the past several months in particular for God to open up an opportunity for us to have a permanent space. And I want to ask you to continue to pray for that as we are seeking the Lord and, and looking for opportunities. But we want to have something consistent for our kids' ministry and so we've come up with a creative solution, and I'm sharing it with you. One, so you can thank all of the kids' ministry leaders, many of you in this room, thank you for your time and investment in our children and your flexibility, but also because it's going to have an adjustment on your, um, your ability to use the restrooms during service. So the kids are now going to be uh, starting Easter next Sunday in the kitchen closet area. We're going to transform that into a cool kids ministry space where they have a little dance, you know, worship dance room in the closet. They're going to have a craft station. It's going to be great. And we can stay there forever. They cannot kick us out of there. We can stay there. And they'll make it their own and have a great time. There's restrooms there for them. It's safe. It's air conditioning. It's perfect. Now, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because starting from 5 o'clock, to when service ends, those restrooms in the back will not be accessible. So you understand that we have to create safety and protection for our kids, and so we have to shut that off. You come early to church, which come early, get coffee, hang out. It's great this, this week. I couldn't even get you guys into church. You're just having so much fun out there. That's great. We like that. Come early. You can use the restrooms. After service, the restrooms will be open. You may be saying, I get it, but what if I have to use the restroom? You know, like, I have, there has to be a restroom. There is another one. Don't worry. The other restroom is you'll have to go out the back, the side doors. We're going to have signs and maps and everything to make it very easy for you. You don't have to walk all the way into Brickle. Don't worry, okay? You just go out the side doors, walk right down this sidewalk. There's a restroom right here in the back of the building that you go through the door. You're right there at the restroom. So I'm telling you that because during the service, it means you're just going to have to have a little walk to go to the restroom. There's a covered pathway right to the restroom. Not a big deal. And I want to ask you to do this too. When you start to make that walk in the future, I want to ask you to pray for our kids' ministry. Don't just 
walk, and then go to the restroom and be like, I only had to walk 20 feet, now I have to walk, walk 60, and I'm frustrated. Pray for our kids' ministry. Pray for our church um, as you make that walk because there's adjustments and flexibility that we have to have, and we're grateful that we have to uh, make these adjustments as a growing church. But we're asking you guys to pray for us, to support us, and, and this is your church. And you may not have children, but these are your kids because we're a family. And I want to ask you just to be flexible with us as the kids' ministry has been so flexible over these years. Okay? Good? So tonight you're good. Those are open tonight, okay? Just next week, a little bit of adjustment. Just a little nice walk, a little prayer walk on the way to the restroom. So tonight, as uh, I mentioned, is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is celebrated every year in the life of the church. If the church observes the, the church calendar, it is the Sunday right before Easter. It launches us into Holy Week. We have Good Friday coming up. And then we have the Easter celebration next Sunday, 5 p.m. right here. You're not going to want to miss it. And traditionally on Palm Sunday, the church preaches a message that is attached to uh, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. That, that Sunday that he enters into Jerusalem on the last week of his life where they're waving palm branches. He's on the donkey. They're shouting as we sang in the first song, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is not actually a name for God. Hosanna means please save us or God save us. So Palm Sunday is this celebration of Jesus being ushered into Jerusalem as the king or the Messiah who has come to save. And the crowd is laying down palm branches and their cloaks with symbolic of ushering in a king. And tonight, we're not going to look at that passage. Actually, several weeks ago, we already looked into that passage. Tonight, we're going to be looking at Good Friday. And the reason that we're doing that is because what I want you to see tonight is that there's actually a unique connection between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Good Friday is kind of like the yang to Palm Sunday's ying. You know, they're, they're the opposite of each other, but there's a, a, there's a connection and through points and attachments that I want you to see because it's, it's profound. And it gives color and, and it gives us more information and better understanding of what it means for Jesus to be king. What it means for him to be Messiah. And so we left off last week with Jesus being betrayed in the garden. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. The soldiers took Jesus away with the religious leaders. And the religious leaders, they, they ha had a council, but they didn't need to know that they were going to convict Jesus. And so they take Jesus then to Pilate, who's the Roman governor who oversees the region. And they bring Jesus to Pilate with all of these accusations. And they tell Pilate, you need to crucify him. We want him dead for his crimes. And they're strategic, so they say that Jesus has been claiming to be king of the Jews. So that upsets Herod, who is the kind of local leader that claims himself to be king of the Jews. But also with Pilate, they're thinking, if we can say that Jesus is claiming to be king of the Jews, that's like a political threat. So we may have more traction getting him crucified. So they bring Jesus to Pilate. They give all these accusations. Pilate then questions Jesus, and he's silent. Now, Jesus is, I mean, uh, Pilate is confused on why Jesus will not respond. And then, after that, he, Pilate, through some interrogation and some questioning and understanding of the religious leaders that brought him, realizes that Jesus is innocent. That it's really just the envy of the religious leaders 
who want him dead because he's a threat to their power and authority. And so Pilate has this idea of putting Jesus up against this man named Barabbas, who is this violent murderer, and kind of putting them next to each other and saying, which one do you want to release? Do you want to set free? Now, this was actually customary. The Romans during Passover week would always release one prisoner to kind of maintain peace and appease the Jewish people where they've occupied their lands. You get to choose one prisoner and you can release every year during Passover. So Pilate puts Barabbas next to Jesus thinking surely they're not going to want Barabbas to be released. And the religious leaders and the Jewish people now who have caught on with him say, no, release Barabbas. And they start to chant and cry out, crucify him to Jesus. They want him to be crucified. So Pilate ends up giving Jesus over to crucifixion. And this is not a small request. This is also not a small decision for him to make because you may have heard before that uh, crucifixion was invented by the Romans as this torture um, device and really a, a, a means of execution, which is true. But it's not as if the Romans were always crucifying people for capital punishment. In fact, the Romans actually only used crucifixion for the worst of all criminals, the worst offenders, because it was a long process, it was a public spectacle, and it was meant to bring public shame and humiliation on someone as they are being killed so that it could be a sign to everybody else, don't fall into the same fate as this person, because this death, which is crucifixion, was bloody, it was brutal, and most people died of suffocation because their lungs would collapse under the weight of holding themselves there for hours upon hours. And so this is not a small decision, but Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. See, Mark here in his gospel picks up a little bit on the brutality and on the spectacle of this situation of the crucifixion and what takes place, and even the way that the Roman soldiers would engage in it. So if you look at verse 16 through 20, here's what Mark says. It says, the soldiers, this is after Jesus has been delivered to be crucified by Pilate. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So before Jesus is crucified, the Roman soldiers take him, and they begin to mock him. They begin to torture him. And they dress him actually like a Greco-Roman king. Remember, his, the accusation is that he's claiming to be king of the Jews. And the, the, the process of crucifixion was to mock and bring humiliation upon the person that was facing this kind of capital punishment. And so they dress him in the purple cloak and the, the crown, which was kind of symbolic, was an imagery for a Greco-Roman king. So they put on the robe, they put the crown of thorns, they begin to say, all hail, king of the Jews, in this mocking tone. And here's what's so interesting about this, this part here. Mark is actually connecting 
the opposite of what takes place five days earlier on Palm Sunday. If you remember the passage, Mark speaks about Palm Sunday as Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He is also, there are shouting, shouts of praise, Hosanna, please save us, please save us. And they're laying down palm branches and they're laying down their cloaks or their robes before him. They're praising him and honoring him. And now, five days later, he is now wearing a purple robe and a crown of thorns and he's facing mockery. Not shouts of praise, but shouts of scorn and mockery. And he's being hit with a reed, which many people, many scholars think that it could have actually been the, the spine of a, a palm branch with the leaves taken off. The hard spine. He's being struck now with the spine of a palm branch. And for the crown of thorns... They, many scholars also believe that that was the, the spines, if you will, or the, the spires, the thorns that are connected to many of the palm branches in that region. So they would have taken some of these palm branches that have the spikes on them and twisted a crown of thorns together and placed that upon Jesus' head. On Palm Sunday, they're shouting and waving palm branches. Five days later, he's being struck with them and having the, the, the thorns of a palm branch placed upon his head. It's no longer honor, now it's shame. It's no longer praise, now it's ridicule upon Jesus. He is ushered into the city as the king who has come to save. And now he's being mocked as the king that can't even save himself. And so they deliver him up to be crucified as he will head to Golgotha, the place of the skull. See, Jesus, when he comes in on Palm Sunday... He's riding a donkey. Everyone is shouting and praising him. And he walks into Jerusalem with that position of honor and praise. And now on Good Friday, he's walking out of Jerusalem carrying his own cross. People screaming and shouting and mocking at him. And I want to read verses 25 through 33, and I want to read it slowly, and if you have your Bible, you can turn there, Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 25. If you have the Crossbridge app, I want to encourage you to open it, follow along on the notes section. Here's what it says. Let's, let's read the account of what Jesus goes through after this mockery from the soldiers as he begins to walk out of Jerusalem. He's carrying his cross, and he's handed over to be crucified. It says this in verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. That's 9 a.m. It's 9 a.m. when they begin to crucify him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So they write on presumably a piece of wood that's up on the cross the charge against him that he claims to be king of the Jews. Five days earlier, they were praising him as king of the Jews, and now that's the accusation against him. They put it up there as a, a sign of what he's guilty of and also a sign of how he is certainly not that in their eyes because he's being crucified. Verse 27, and, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. So oftentimes there was crucifixion with a multitude of people because it was this big process, but remember Crucifixion was only for the worst of all offenders and criminals. Meaning, these thieves, these criminals that are placed next to Jesus, 
have done some horrible things. These are despicable people, and they are regarded as such in their society, and Jesus is now being identified with them. He's in the middle of both of these thieves. He's being identified with these outcasts and despicable people regarded in society. It says then in verse 29, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now this is not speaking of the religious leaders who have been saying these things all along. They're going to say that next. This is the crowd. These are the people that are walking by the place of the skull that would have been right outside of the walls of Jerusalem in a public place, right outside the marketplace where people would be passing by. Mark says that people are walking by, wagging their heads and looking at Jesus as he's being tortured on the cross and saying, you said that you'd destroy the temple and rebuild it. You're the king of the Jews that we were shouting Hosanna five days ago. You can't even come down and save yourself. Public shame. On him. The chief priests pick this up. They want to affirm the crowd in verse 31. So the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So the chief priests pick it up. They affirm the crowd. They're like, he, he saved other people. He can't even save himself. Oh, yeah, didn't he say he's the Christ, the king of Israel? Well, we want to believe Jesus. Why don't you prove your divinity and come down from the cross so that we might see it and believe? Mockery. Over and over and over again. This is what Jesus experiences on Good Friday. The exact opposite of Palm Sunday. And here's what it says next. Such an interesting detail. I say this all the time. When you read God's word on your own, do not run past the details that jump out in your mind like, why is that there? Why would that be included? There's a reason for every word. Verse 33 says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour is 12 noon. So from 12 noon to 3 p.m., there's complete darkness as Jesus is being crucified. We'll read in a moment that at 3 p.m. is when Jesus breathes his last breath. It's when he dies. So there's complete darkness. What Mark is saying, the other gospels affirm as well, is that when Jesus is crucified, it's completely dark. It's completely dark. Now, this has been validated by many sources, and so there's been a lot of explanations like, okay, why was it dark for three hours, the last three hours of Jesus' life as he's being crucified? Some people said, maybe it's a solar eclipse, just like kind of happened at the same time. Well, the problem with that is solar eclipse, they only last about three minutes of darkness, not three hours. Also, a solar eclipse can never happen when, they're, when it's during the time of a full moon. And Passover is always set during the time of a full moon. So it cannot be a solar eclipse. Maybe some, some scholars have said it could be like the windstorm. Because there's a desert region near Jerusalem. And so oftentimes there would, there would be these great windstorms that would come from 
these, these uh, storms that come off the Mediterranean and blow up the wind and block out the sun. So maybe there was a windstorm that took place during, during Jesus' death that blocked out the sun and made it dark. That is plausible. However, the Passover, the time of the Passover when Jesus is crucified is during the wet season in Israel. And windstorms don't take place during the wet season in Israel. So what caused this complete darkness? Why was it dark for three hours as Jesus is crucified? You're in church, so it's easy to guess the answer, God. Okay? It's always the right answer in church. God, Jesus, those are, like, you're really, you're really on to something with those answers. It was God. It was a supernatural event, but the question is why? If, if God supernaturally, as he is the creator of all things, he is the author of nature, he can control it. So he brings about this darkness for the last three hours of Jesus' life when he dies. Why does he do it? What's the purpose of that detail? Well, all throughout the Bible, darkness is synonymous with God's judgment. God's judgment and darkness go hand in hand. A great example of this is on the very the time of the very first Passover when Israel, when God's people, Israel, is enslaved by Egypt, and God raises up Moses to be a deliverer to lead God's people out of bondage and into freedom in the promised land. God does so by bringing about these plagues that are judgments upon Pharaoh and Egypt that has been oppressing God's people. And the ninth plague is complete darkness. So darkness and God's judgment, they go hands in hands. So what Mark is picking up and wants you and me to see is that the last three hours of Jesus' life, as he is being crucified, God is judging someone. Now you may think, I can probably guess who it is. Maybe the soldiers who have been beating him and mocking him. Maybe it's Judas and all the others who have betrayed him, the people that said Hosanna and are now saying crucify him and are wagging their heads. Those are some good people for God to judge. Maybe it's the religious leaders who created this whole, this whole lie to get Jesus crucified. Maybe it's Pilate because he knows that Jesus is innocent and yet he still delivers him to be crucified. Sounds like those are probably the people that God is judging. Well, Mark answers that question in the very next verse. Verse 34, we read this. And at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma, sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is not judging the soldiers or the crowd or Judas or Pilate. God the Father is judging Jesus. He says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I the one that is being judged? And as he says, my God, that's a, a term of endearment, of intimacy. You use that language too. When you say, this is my husband or my wife, my friend, my son, my daughter. When you use my, you're saying there, there's a relationship, there's an attachment, there's intimacy that you have with the person that you're identifying yourself with. Jesus is saying, my God. 
He's speaking to God the Father, who God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have existed in perfect communion and unity for all of time and before time, for all of eternity. They have been loving each other perfectly in perfect fellowship. And now on the cross, as Jesus is dying for the sins of his people, the very people who betray him and scorn him and wag their heads at him, Jesus is being judged by God because of the sin that he is dying for. The father whose face was always looking at Jesus has now turned his face away. And Jesus feels that judgment. He takes that judgment in complete darkness. He cries out, why have you forsaken me? Why does God do this? Why does God the Father bring complete darkness for three hours? And why does Jesus, one of the last words that he says before he cries out, it is finished. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does God judge Jesus in complete darkness? For you and for me. See, God is teaching here. He wants you to understand, not just in your mind, but in your heart and your soul, that Jesus was forsaken so you don't have to be. That Jesus was judged so you don't have to be. That Jesus died in complete darkness so you don't have to live in darkness. You see, Jesus' death for your sins and your shame and your guilt is so much more complex than we could possibly fathom. It's why we need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. He died for my darkness. He died for the judgment I deserve. He died so I don't have to feel and fear that I'm going to be forsaken. He was forsaken. He was judged. He died in darkness. I can live free. I can live in the light. I can be accepted by the very God who created me. This is what God is teaching as Jesus dies in complete darkness Jesus is the king of kings. He was ushered that way in on Palm Sunday. He still is the king of kings, but he's showing something to his people right now. Those of us here in this room, that he's the king of kings, but he's also the king of agony. He's the king of sorrow. He's the king of suffering. He's the king in darkness. And he took those things upon himself so that you don't have to live those things in your life. Because he died in darkness for you. He faced agony that you could never understand. He suffered in a way that you could never imagine. You see, you have a God who bleeds. You have a God who was broken. The proof of God's love is in his wounds. It is in what happens right here. In his wounds on the cross. As he dies in darkness. It is a reminder. It is a symbol. It is a sign to you that God loves you. How could you deny that? He died in complete darkness. He was judged by the Father, so you don't have to be. You know, one of my favorite stories is the story of, of Ernest Shackleton. He was an explorer in 1914, and he brought a, a company of men to try to cross the South Pole on foot. He wanted to take his ship and dock it on one side of Antarctica and cross the South Pole all the way to the other side. It'd be the first person to do it in the way that he had designed the mission. 
This is all featured in, in a great book called Endurance. If you've never read it before, highly recommend. It's a great book. And the biographer that writes was a series of biographers that tell the story of what happened. They begin to approach Antarctica and they get stuck in polar ice. They don't actually make it very far on the journey. They get stuck in polar ice and they can't get out. And it begins to affect the ship. The ship sinks. They're stuck now in Antarctica. This is 1914. It's not like pull out your cell phone and call somebody. They're stuck there for months upon months. Starvation, blizzards, freezing temperature, trying to move and navigate their way out of this to get to some type of whaling station where they can find safety and find rescue. One of the biographers says that the hardest part of this entire journey, many people, they, many of this excursion survived, says that the complete darkness that they faced was the hardest part. You see, in Antarctica, in the South Pole, from about mid-May to late July, it's completely dark. No sun at all. So this is the hardest thing we had to endure. That much darkness. Why? Because when you face physical darkness, you have no sense of direction. You're disoriented. You actually lose, uh, you lose some of your identity because you can't see yourself. So some of your identity gets affected. Forget who you are, what you look like. You feel isolated. You don't know if something is friend or foe. The way that you have to navigate life is by feeling around to see if something feels safe and good. It's a horrible way to live. It's a horrible thing to experience for a pro prolonged period of time. It affects you severely. You see, the way that physical darkness affects us physically, it's also the way that it affects us spiritually and mentally and emotionally. When you are in spiritual darkness, when you are in mental and emotional darkness, you feel the same way. Disoriented, a lack of direction, you lose a sense of your identity, and so you oftentimes live out of a different identity because you don't see yourself for who you truly are. You begin to, to try to navigate through life, feeling around to see if something feels safe and good, hoping that it's friend and not foe. You feel isolated. When you are in spiritual and mental and emotional darkness, this is your experience. This is what it feels like. It's the same losses that you would feel and encounter if you were in physical darkness. The reason I tell you that is because I want you to ask yourself a question. Why is Jesus the son of suffering? Why was Jesus crucified in complete darkness? What is God teaching? You see, he's teaching something profound. And that is this. Jesus died in complete darkness to signal to you and to me that when you find Jesus, when you receive Jesus, the spiritual darkness that you face, the mental darkness that torments you, the emotional darkness that brings you to despair can be transferred, can be gone because Jesus died not only so that you might 
enjoy the light of this world by God's grace, a new day, but that you might find light spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. He is the son of suffering and darkness so that you don't have to live in darkness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 says this, You do not grieve as others do who have no hope. Why do you and me not grieve as others do who have no hope? It's a really simple answer because you have hope. It doesn't mean that you don't grieve. It doesn't mean that you don't have emotions that affect you. It means that you grieve differently. You live differently. You may struggle with mental darkness and emotional darkness. You may have at one time or maybe tonight you still feel spiritual darkness. But you don't exist and relate with those things in the same way as others because you have the light of the world. You have the one who died in darkness for you. You have the son of suffering given for you. The king of agony and suffering and sorrow and judgment. The king who died in darkness so you don't have to live in darkness. You see, when you understand this, it has two implications. There are two things that I think that God is teaching, and this is how I want us to close, to consider these things. The first thing is this, that spiritual darkness is gone when you receive Jesus. Spiritual darkness is gone when you receive Jesus. What I mean by that is not that there's not times where you have spiritual confusion or you feel spiritually down, or in a spiritual season where you feel dry and disconnected, it's that spiritual darkness is gone. You cannot believe that Jesus died in darkness so that you can live in the light and then believe that you're still spiritually in darkness. Many of us live that way in our faith. Or maybe that is what's kept you from God, or maybe you don't have a full understanding of God. Because you view God as some kind of demanding coach who if you break the rules, he's just waiting to kick you off the team. That God has some judgment reserved for you. And you got to make sure that you do the right religious things and you, 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 know, you do everything in the way that you're supposed to. That, that's why so many people go to church on Easter. Right? Why do so many people that go to church on Easter that don't go to church any other time of the year? Because there's that feeling like, i got to go to church on Easter. You know, like, I don't want whatever kind of judgment God's got for me. It's Easter, you know. It's like the main day. So let me go in, let me do Easter, and then I'm out. But that is not what the gospel teaches us. The gospel teaches us that when you receive Jesus, judgment is gone. Spiritual sorrow is gone. Spiritual suffering is gone. Jesus died for that. It's no longer yours. See, Jesus is the king of Palm Sunday, and he's the savior of Good Friday. See, Good Friday wasn't good for Jesus, but it was good for you. That's why we call it Good Friday. It's not like, oh, that was a, oh, everything that happened there looks great. <laughs> all the brutality, all the violence, all the humiliation, all the shame, it was not good for Jesus, but he did it for you, so it was a Good Friday for you. Because spiritual darkness is gone. You can live free. Second implication is that emotional and mental darkness is transferred when you receive Jesus. It doesn't mean that emotional and mental darkness is gone. As Simone shared, the side-by-side -side women's group is, is going through anxiety and talking about how to process anxiety and hearing from mental health counselors and thinking about soul care. We still struggle with mental 
and emotional darkness, all of us in different ways. But when you receive Jesus, it's transferred. That's why we don't grieve like others who have no hope, because we have hope. We don't live in despair. Jesus died for us. I want to read these three verses, and I want you to see how God has put this together for us to understand how we transfer our emotional and mental darkness to live different, to not grieve like others do, to find joy and to find freedom in what Good Friday teaches us. Here's a few verses. Psalm 34, verse 18 says this. Just listen. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Somebody who's facing mental and emotional darkness, the Lord is near to them. And he saves those that are crushed in spirit. 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all, not some, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God cares for you. Cast all your anxieties on him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Listen to this. Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. There's so many other scriptures I could add to something I want to share with you. And I think it's, it, it's this. And if you have the app, you could take notes. But I want to encourage you to write this down and to remember this. Here's what God is teaching about emotional and mental darkness. One, God is near. He is near. He is near to those who are brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. We're to cast our cares. Cast all of our cares, not some of our cares, but all of our cares. We're to hold fast to our confession. Meaning, when you know that God is near and you begin to cast all of your cares upon him, you also need to hold fast to your confession of faith. That what you believe is true and you hold tightly to it, that Jesus died in darkness for you, that he was judged for you, that he's the king of sorrow and suffering for you, so you don't have to live that way. You hold fast to it as you cast your cares. And fourth, you confidently draw near. You see how the order goes? God is near to me. I'm going to cast my cares upon you. God, I'm going to hold fast to my confession because when I think about my cares, sometimes it drags me down. And I get discouraged, but I'm going to hold fast to my confession. And I'm going to confidently now draw near to you. And when I confidently draw near to you, I am going to receive grace. This is not like a suggestion by God. This is what God promises you. When you know he's near to you and you cast your cares upon him and you hold fast to your confession of faith and you come with confidence near the Lord, he will give you grace. And what that means is that he will give you exactly what you need. Not always what you want, but he will give you what you need. God will give you the grace that you need. You see, Jesus took on the cross what you deserve so that God could give you what you need. 
He died the death you deserve. He died in darkness, which is what we deserve. He faced agony and suffering for sin, which is what we deserve. And he took that willingly so that you and me might approach confidently, that we might draw near. We might know that he's near. We might cast our cares. We might hold fast to our confession and receive grace. God promises to give you exactly what you need when you draw near to him. The question is, will you hold fast to that confession and draw near? So my prayer for us as we launch into Holy Week is that you would do one of two things. That first, if you have been facing spiritual darkness, that you have been living in spiritual confusion, maybe you feel like you've been distant from God, that God is someone who's going to judge you, that you have to perform for God, and so you've been all cloudy and dark spiritually, I want to invite you tonight to give your life to Jesus. That doesn't mean you have to go do some steps, you have to do some program, you have to go fix some things, you'll come back next week. No, God says, come to me all who believe. Just come through belief. You come through prayer. You come with surrender. You come to receive Jesus. You say, you died for me. That's how simple it is. And you will see your entire life gone, spiritual darkness removed. Secondly, if you have received Christ and you know that spiritual darkness has been taken from you, but you're struggling with mental and emotional darkness, would you trust God's word and draw near to him, hold fast to your confession, come with confidence, cast your cares upon him? And receive grace, believing that Jesus died in darkness so you don't have to live in darkness? We should hold to that and believe that. That's who we're to be as his people. We live that way this week as we step into Holy Week. Will you pray with me? God, I confess that sometimes we... We are confused about your nature. We are confused about your love. May we remember tonight that, God, your love is in your wounds. It is in the reality that we believe in a God who suffered and a God who was broken and a God who bled for us. Jesus and you who died in darkness so we don't have to live in darkness. You are the king of kings but you're also the king in darkness. May may that give us confidence. May that give us joy to approach you. I pray for those of us in this room that are struggling with mental and emotional darkness, feeling disoriented, feeling a lack of direction, feeling isolated, feeling like we're just trying to navigate through life, hoping that the decisions we make and the people that we engage are friends and not foe. God, I pray that we draw near to you tonight. We cast our cares, and as they come to mind, that they would actually not bring despair, but they would bring us hope because we know that you've promised to give grace. Let us hold fast to that confession, God. And I want to pray right now for anyone in this room that has been in spiritual darkness. It's maybe questioning you, God, has felt like you're demanding or you've reserved judgment for, for them or has maybe just kept you at a distance for one reason or another, but wants to see that spiritual darkness removed, wants to see very clearly who you are. God, if 
there is someone here in this room, Holy Spirit, would you move in their heart right now just to, to pray a simple prayer? Just pray, God, I don't have all the answers. I'm broken. I live my life in darkness many times. But I believe that you died for me, Jesus. I believe that you love me and that the proof is in your wounds. I believe that you're the King of Kings, that you're Messiah, that you're the Son of God. Again, God, I don't have all the answers, but you do. I want to receive you tonight, Jesus. God, as we're in this moment now of prayer, just as your church, if anyone prayed that prayer tonight, I want to ask you just to raise your hand. Raise your hand and then come see me. Come see Simone after service. God, we... We are grateful. We are grateful for you that you invite all of us to you. If anyone here has questions, God, I want to encourage them to, to be courageous. To come talk to someone here in this church. To see spiritual darkness removed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, church, as we close our time of worship this evening, it's customary for us to close with communion. Now, we don't do that simply as a custom or as a ritual, but we do it because it's a means of grace. We don't believe that Jesus is physically present in the bread or in the wine or the juice, but we do believe that he's spiritually present, that he promises that he is near to us when we are gathered, and that we're to come to the table with confidence if we believe in faith in Christ. So if you are here tonight and you have received Jesus, you have seen spiritual darkness removed from your life, then I want to ask you in a moment to come forward to the table with confidence, and I want to ask you to bring your cares. Bring your darkness, your mental, your emotional darkness, your anxiety, your worry, bring it to the table and trust that God is going to give you grace. He's going to give you hope. He's going to give you peace. He's going to give you clarity. Tonight, not in the future, but tonight. Would you draw that to mind? Would it not lead you to despair, but would it lead you to hope as you partake of these elements with your church in a moment? I'm going to invite forward some of our leaders. I'm going to serve them. They're going to be stationed. We're going to have juice on this side and wine on this side. And so in a moment when I invite you forward, would you come up and take the bread and then grab the juice or the wine and partake of it up here and head back to your seat along the side. So let me invite our leaders forward as I serve them and invite you forward in a moment.
words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul writes to us, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. You do it in remembrance of me until I come again. When you are ready, church, will you come forward and taste and see that the Lord is good to you?
church, let's stand and sing together. was one.